Okay, so numbers 22. Do you need something with big, big letters? Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to talk about Balaam. Um, and we know in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about how all the things in the Old Testament were written for our instruction. They were written so that we could read about people in the Old Testament and apply uh, the things that were happening in their lives to our lives and so that the Bible says we won't practice the same things. And uh, you guys all know who Balaam is, right? Wow, that Bible is, is that a, beat up. Like a God that they used huh? to worship? No, Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. and, it's cool uh, as they found archaeological evidence of a historical guy really? in the same area named that is super cool. And that's the thing, like we talked about before, every time they find more archaeology in Israel and in the Middle East, instead of contradicting the Bible, they always agree with the Bible and add to it. And stuff, I, I, so. I do like the trope of, you know, that there never used to be a, a Moab until, oh, there was a, there actually was a Moab. And right. Now you can get, you know, like well, even Solomon and, and David and yeah. stuff like that. So anyway, I thought we would just read through the whole story of Balaam and kind of talk about it and see what we can draw out of it. And in verse 22, now in, in Numbers 22, this is, um, this is the people of Israel had been in the wilderness. Um, they're kind of coming towards the end of that. Um, the people had already made God angry and he says, this generation is not going to enter in. And basically, so now God is starting to work with the newer generation that's going to enter in. This is after he'd already sent the spies in and, and all that kind of stuff. And so um, basically, so when we, when we come to uh, chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan, opposite of Jericho. You see that? So what's the first place that the people of Israel went into the promised land? Through Jericho, right? And so basically, they're knocking on the door of the promised land now. And, and so God is preparing them to enter in. And they've already had some fights because, because of it. They, went, they tried to go through the Amorite territory. And they're like, you know, they asked them for permission to go through, the, through their territory. And they're like, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to destroy your land. We're not going to take anything that doesn't belong to us. We're just going to stay on the highway and go right through it. And the Amorites tried to prevent them. And so they, through, through war. And so because of that, the Israelites completely destroyed the Amorites and took over all those cities. And uh, in uh, verse 2, it says, Now Balak, the son of Zippor, and saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab, who Balak was the king of Moab, says, So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Verse 4, Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So again, and, and they have natural fears. You know, these, this, there's this whole millions of Israelites that are coming this way and this land's not enough to sustain everybody. And in verse 5 it says, So he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river. The river is the river Euphrates. In the land of the sons of his people to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. 
Now therefore, please come curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For look at this, he says, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now that sounds like what God told Abraham, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone that you bless, I will bless. Everyone that you curse, I will curse. Now it says that he sends, uh, he sent messengers all the way to the to the river Euphrates, to the land of Pethor, where Balaam is living at. And from what I was researching, that's like a three or four week journey. So I mean, he sends all this way to bring a prophet and to come and curse the people. Now. Think about it, in those days, news didn't travel the way it travels now, right? They didn't have, you know, the internet, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have TV, they didn't have anything like that. So news essentially traveled by word of mouth, okay? So the thing that we can discern from that is that this Balaam person is somebody who, when he spoke something, it happened, right? And he even says, because I know that who you bless will be blessed and who you curse will be cursed. So Balaam had a reputation. People knew who he was. People knew that when he spoke, things happened. And when, or when he spoke, you know, you know, when he spoke, there was power behind it and things happened. And so the king of, uh, of um, Moab was willing to spend Lots of money to send emissaries to go pay for him to come and curse the people of Israel. Do you, do you see that? So again, Balaam wasn't just this nobody and it's like, let's get somebody that's, you know, can probably curse these people from it. He's someone that had a reputation, somebody that people, even from three or four weeks away from that kind of distance, knew of his reputation and knew of his abilities and of the, the uh, giftings that he had. Verse 6, he says, Now therefore, please come curse his people. For, or verse 7, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed from the, with the fees for divination in their hand. So they're going with money. The king's sending them with money. Again, uh, think of it in terms of today. If you sent people on a journey that was going to take three or four weeks to go get someone to do a job for you, it's, you're sending a lot of money, Right? You're not just sending 50 bucks. You're, spend, you're sending a lot of money to entice this person to come out of his way and to do what you want him to do. He says, uh, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. You see that? Now that word Lord there is the same word Yahweh or Jehovah. And so we're, we're, we see this through this that Balaam wasn't, uh, as far as we know, like an astrologer. He wasn't following Baal. He wasn't following some other god. The gifting that he had, the words that were spoken to him was from him seeking God the God of the Bible, Yahweh or Jehovah. Does that make sense? So he wasn't getting his prophecies from Ashtaroth. He wasn't getting them from Chemosh or any other gods of the, the ancient Near East. He was getting them from God, from Yahweh, the only God. Um, so he says, Spend the night here and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Verse 9, then God, again, we're talking about the God of the Bible. We're not talking about Baal. We're not talking about any other false God or anything like that. We're talking about the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah. He says, then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? 
And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. Look what God says to Balaam in verse 12. God said to Balaam, do not go with them. Do you see that? Now, we think, and it, I think it's the society that we live in. Like when, when we're with our kids, we tell them, you know, you see it all the time at the mall or at the store or whatever. Don't let me tell you again, right? Parents talking to their kids. And we live in a society where we have to tell our kids 15 times not to do something or tell them 15 <laughs> times to do something and stuff. Over and over in the Word of God, you see God say one time, this is what I want, right? Even in the Garden of Eden, you don't see God saying to Adam and Eve 15 times, I'm telling you guys, don't eat off of this tree, okay? Listen, are you listening to what I'm saying? <laughs> don't eat off the tree. You can do whatever you want, don't eat off the tree. You don't see that happening. You only see God say one time, do not eat off of this tree. Everything else you want to do, you can do. Don't eat off this tree. And so God speaks to Balaam. Now, Balaam is a prophet of God, right? I mean, I think we've established that. It's not, he's not a false prophet. He's not a prophet of Baal. He's not a prophet from other, any other God. He's a prophet from God. God speaks to him, and he hears from God, even to the extent that he's gotten a reputation because of it. And, God, and so this is a man that should know the voice and the will of God. God speaks to him and says, do not go with them. Okay, back to verse 12. God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So look what it says in verse 13. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now right here is where the story should end. Okay, there shouldn't be any more back and forth or anything like that. At this point, God has spoken to him and God wants obedience. What, does, what did God say to Saul? To obey is better than sacrifice. And it's better than the fat of rams. You're, you're, all the things that we do for God, all, all of our religious things, all of our good things, right? All of our ministry things and, and laying down our lives and the things that are good and God wants us to do. Those are good things, but nothing, everything pales in comparison to obedience to what he says. And the problem is, is every one of us have a call on our, on our lives. Every one of, of us have gifts and every one of us have purpose. And God wants us to fulfill those purposes. But more than anything, he wants us to be able to hear what he says and to obey his voice. And the problem with us in the church is that we think that God's commands are, we take them lightly, right? We think that, you know, okay, God, we are... We are like God the way we are with our spouses sometimes. Well, I know that she's going to be upset, but it's better to do it and ask for forgiveness later than to not get what you want. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we are with God a lot of times. And basically, that's what Balaam's doing. Verse 14, it says, The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Now again, think of this. This is a three, four week journey. They got to go all the way back to Balak and tell him, okay, this guy's not coming. Now, it's probably maybe they did it in two weeks because they're, they're moving, right? But still, it's a process. And this whole thing, we, that's a, again, we read the Bible and we th read things that happen in the Bible and it, it seems like they're just happening in a matter of days. This probably was months in the happening and stuff. And so it's, it's, 
And when we think of it in terms like this, this makes the Bible more real to us, right? Because this is like life. Life is not this just boom, 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 things happen here, things happen there, and we result, you know, we react to things and things like that. You know, um, the Bible is full of life. And we have to think of it in those terms. We have to think of what's really going on this, in this situation. How did it really happen? Um, so verse 16, they came to Balaam. Uh, so they come, or, oh, verse 15. Then Balak again sent leaders more numerous, and look at this, more distinguished than the former. Okay, so uh, again, now these distinguished people, right? I mean, I'm sure it was distinguished people before, but now it's even more distinguished people. And so what are they appealing to? They're appealing to his pride, right? They're like, oh, look at these really important people that are coming to me now. And so they, again, and these are the ways, it, as we read this story, we're, we'll see that these are the way that Satan works on each one of us, right? And the problem with Balaam, we're going to see, is that Balaam, we know the scripture that says, do not give the devil a place of opportunity, right? And the problem with each of us is that there are opportunity, places of opportunity in our lives that left undealt with, those can uh, become strongholds. They can become footholds for the enemy to be able to put his foot in the door and be able, once you get the foot in the door, you can begin to open it wider and wider, right? And we're going to see that that's exactly what happened with Balaam. Um, so he says, they came to Balaam in verse 16 and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing I beg you hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I do. I will do whatever you say to me. Uh, please come then, curse this people for us. And again, God had told Balaam, do not go, right? Verse 18, Balaam replied to the servants of Balak. Now listen to this. He says, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything either small or great contrary to the command of the Lord my God. So I think that he's talking big, right? And that's the way that we are a lot of times. Sometimes our, our talk is bigger than our character. And, and I think that in some ways, we, he might be saying, oh, you know, even if Balak were to give me all this stuff, you know, I, I, then I still wouldn't go. But I think he's kind of trying to make the pot a little richer for himself. You know what I'm saying? And stuff. And so... He's, and I think that, and this is how the enemy works, okay? The enemy knows our weaknesses because that's what Satan's been doing since the beginning, right? Finding ways to destroy believers, finding ways to trip people up. And so when he sees that there is a particular weakness in your life, he will begin to attack it. And basically what happens is most of the time when the enemy first comes to us, we're strong, right? And we hold up our shield and we're like, no, you can't do this. You can't come in here. And not today, Satan. Right? And the problem is, is most of the times we start strong, but we don't finish strong. And the reason why is because we, we become complacent. Remember Samson? What happened? The, the enemy came to Samson several times. And he fought against it and fought against it. And then it says, Delilah continually wore him down by her constant... Uh, nagging essentially and that's the way the enemy does is he wears us down and he tries to make us weary and tries to make us tired of fighting mm. 
And that is the nature of Satan. Satan, we think of in our minds, we, we, I've got this armor on. I've got the armor of God. I'm ready to stand. I'm strong. And, and we think that it's going to be this just, just massive blow against us. And a lot of times that's how it starts. But then it becomes like the waves. It becomes like waves on a shore that eventually uh, will break down anything, right? It's like uh, Amy's parents live, live on a lake. And, and it used to be on a cliff. Uh, their property, but the continual beating of the waves are almost about to destroy their whole property because it's it's eroding their whole property and stuff. And that's the nature of the waves, and that's the nature of Satan. I have one question for you. Mm -hmm. God created Satan, right? He was like the angel of music yeah. in heaven. It's only one person, correct? Yeah. How can he have the power to control seven billion people that live in this planet. Well, it I talks about it talks about in God is God and He has He sees everything, He sees everything, is in control of everything. Yeah. But how can one person created by God have that power to interfere in so many people's minds? Yeah. That just blows my mind. Well, okay, if so not God, when the not God, when the when the Bible talks about Satan, it's not necessarily talking about Satan himself, right? It talks about in Revelations that when, when Satan fell from the star, it says he swept two-thirds of the stars with him. And so Satan's not the only fallen angel. And we don't know how many people, how many angels, angels right. fell with him. So two-thirds is more than the seven billion of people that are in Potentially. this planet? Potentially. Potentially. He doesn't control us That's anyway. Mm -hmm. even, if you're, even if you're demon-possessed, you're still in control so that you're guilty, so you're still have enough control. So he doesn't control anything. Man gave him control. Gotcha. But man, he, right. he pretty much controls us by lies and fear. You know, mm -hmm. you, you get a few lies, you believe those lies. Like I've been thinking about people and the delusions they have and how mm -hmm. ingrained delusions are and how you can't get them out of their brains sometimes. And only God knows how to do that, so you have to beg God to please help them. You know, please break these delusions. So the but once there's a lie yeah. and somebody and has this, yeah, then it becomes a habit. Yeah. You have a habit of thinking a certain way. And so, and he does watch. He knows our habits. He knows each one of us what's going to make us turn and curse God. And that's what he's after. That's what the devil wants to do in your life. Whatever it takes to make you turn and curse God, that's what he's going to try to bring your way. So yeah. he watches and he waits. And he tries to find that thing, and then that's what he's going to try So to do you find. think that when he came, when he was kicked out of heaven, with all those demons, that they had a, a demon meeting and said, okay, let's go out to humans and attack them this way? Pretty much. The thing is, is their, their whole agenda to is to, to discredit God. Gotcha. I mean, I'm, God cast them out of heaven, right? Their whole thing is, why? Because they rebelled against God. Right. So their whole thing is, their war, their battle is against God. And they use humans as pawns. Um, you even re read in like the book of Daniel that there are princes over certain principalities and certain geographical so areas. Yeah. Sure, why not? They're like an army. The Bible describes gotcha. like an Right. And so, and that's the thing. Again, when we're talking about Satan, we're not talking specifically about Satan himself, right? We're talking about the whole 
um, principalities and powers and, you know, the dark forces of this wickedness in the heavenly places gotcha. and all that. It's a network, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. Um, okay. We don't have it easy at all. No. Every day but that you get up, we do have victory, day. right? Yeah, and the thing is, is, is we're gonna we're gonna power. see through this that that it's through it's through being aware, and being and knowing that we're in a battle, knowing that we're in a war. If you and that's the problem with us a lot as as Christians is we 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 see it just as oh salvation and all the good stuff. We see all the blessings and all that kind of thing without realizing that as soon as you said I do to Jesus, you put on your your armor. Because you are going to get attacked. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will be attacked. You're either in a trial right now, you're coming out of one, or you're fixing to go in one. You know, or all three at the same time. You know? And, and the thing is, is because wow. Satan goes about like a roaring lion, continually seeking someone to devour. If he sees somebody that doesn't have their armor on, if he sees someone that's not... That's not um, the book of Nehemiah talks about how that when they were restoring the wall, um, and hopefully we'll teach about Nehemiah soon, but um, it's when they were released back from captivities, they, they went back to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the walls. Now they have all these enemies against them. In fact, the enemies are like, look at their wall. Even if a fox were to jump on it, it would knock their wall down and stuff. And it talks about how the builders would build the wall they, they would build the wall with one hand, they would have a trowel and like bricks in one hand, and in the other hand they would have their weapons. And so that is what, if we are, as the church of Jesus, we are building something. We are building the kingdom of God. We are building, we are seeking his kingdom. We are wanting his kingdom to come through the things that we do. But at the same time, we have to have a weapon in our hands because there's an enemy who does not want the kingdom of God to come. There's an enemy who wants to keep the world bound in deception, blind to everything that's happening around it, and, and lost. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his only purpose. Autonomy from God. Yeah. Well, another thing from Nehemiah too is like they have there were gaps in the wall, and they right. put people in those gaps. So like we we often need to know our own weaknesses so that we can like internally put someone in the gap. That's you know? good. That's good, and that's why accountability is good too, right? I mean, especially people with the house to know about. You know, if there's no accountability, well, all of us, we have to have accountability because we're all weak. We're all susceptible. And just like Daniel saying, do, we need to have people that are able to see the gaps in our armor and say, look, you're, you're vulnerable here. And, and that's why we need brothers and sisters. If we, and that's what the body of Christ is for. If we don't have that, we will be destroyed. Because nobody, no person can stand on their own. We need each other and stuff. Um, verse. That's quite a challenge. Every yeah, it is. Worry about making a living and paying your bills. <laughs> right. And doing all this stuff. So he says not to a battle that you cannot even see. <laughs> yeah. He can huh? be of good cheer because he yeah. has overcome no. the yeah. world. Okay. And he has granted us that power also. Yeah. But the only thing I'm saying is that we have to be alert. Like, we have to. Yeah. We have to be alert. That's why Paul said over and over, "Be on the alert." Be on the alert yeah, and stuff. Yeah, with me it's like that because I realize that he tried, the way that I feel like I get attacked is like, I feel like it's in the area of judgment. Yeah. Like he, he tries to make judgment where it's not, um, 
where it's like this really fuzzy, well, you know, this is okay. And it kind of becomes this really sloppy way of just making good, righteous judgment, having good, solid discernment. Yeah. That's solid. And so it's like, and it's the things, I mean, yes, I agree, like, it's the, it's outright, you know, things like, oh, that's, that was obviously an attack from Satan, and then he keeps on, keeps on, and yes, I can see that wearing me down, but also it's, you know, like, I think about, it's things like Peter, when he denied the Lord, it was this little servant girl, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, you know, yeah. no one would think this little servant girl would be really like this, you know, <laughs> this really intimidating person to knock down Peter, you know, it was this little girl, you know, this little maid, you know, by the fire. And so it's like the things that I'm not looking for too. It's like it's always the things yeah. that you're not looking for. And so it's like and they just kinda just insert and I'm like, oh no, you know, and then I'm like, oh man. And it's just my discernment and my judgment, like right judgment, right yeah. discernment is like is uh compromised. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so just things like that. Oh. Yeah, it's like Elijah at Mount Carmel when he when he uh, defeated the eight hundred and fifty false prophets. Mm -hmm. I mean, one man stands against eight hundred and fifty yeah. false prophets. The king, all the king's army, and everybody. He stands against these prophets and and totally, he winds up having them all killed and yeah. things. And then the next moment. He's running because Jezebel, the king's wife, says, I'm going to kill that guy. Yeah, and he's and going, so he runs. Yeah. <laughs> After standing against all these yeah. warriors and and mighty people and stuff. And that's the thing. And that is the nature. It, that's why we have to be alert because, you know, the enemy is so skilled in destroying us. And again, this is not to instill fear in our hearts because it's just the New Testament is filled with that if we're abiding in Him, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're on the alert, the enemy can do nothing to us. But my thing is, is that too many of us as believers are not on the alert. Too many of us, it's like when I was in the Marines, it's like every every night you'd hear stories about how someone's caught on guard duty sleeping. You know, I mean, think about in a warlike situation. If some, one person is sleeping, the enemy can come in and destroy everybody. It all it takes is one person. So, um, verse 19. Now, so again, they're trying to entice Balaam to come with him. He says, now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. Now, why is Balaam going back to the Lord and saying, Lord, what, what, are you sure about this? And to me, it's like Balaam is being like a child. How many times when we were children did you ask your parents for something and they said no? And you're like, oh, can I have it? Can I have it? And so you keep asking them, and you keep asking them, and you keep asking them to hoping to wear them down, right? <laughs> and that's what Balaam is doing. God has already told him no. Verse 20 says, God came to Balaam, and I think what I think God is exasperated at this point, and God's just saying, okay, whatever you want to do. It says, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do also. And again, I think God is angry right now. It says, So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and with, went with the leaders of Moab. Look at this, verse 22. But God was angry because he was going. You see that? God had told him no. And like a child, Balaam keeps asking him, Can I go? Can I go? And so what are we seeing here? There's something in Balaam's heart that keeps him wanting to do that. 
Why? Is Balaam for God? Or is Balaam for these people? Or is Balaam for the prophet? Is ba there's something in Balaam's heart that's ma that, that is want making him want to face the wrath of God and still go after God had told him. In verse, uh, it says, when the donkey, or it says, uh, it says, verse 22 again, it says, but God was angry because he was going and the angel, and again, it's just like, uh, you know, um, turn to uh, Numbers chapter 11. Hold your place there. Now, we, we read, over, if you guys have read the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and stuff, over and over and over, they grumble and complain against God. God gives them manna, they complain about that. God gives them water, they complain because, you know, they complain over and over after God had sent 10 plagues on the Egyptians, brought them out supernaturally. When they come to the Red Sea, they're like, it's over, we're going to die. And God splits the Red Sea open and kills all the Egyptians. And they still grumble against God. And the book of, of um, Exodus and Numbers is full of that. And, and so in, in Numbers 11, God had given, the, they, they grumbled because they were hungry. And God's like, I hear you're grumbling. And so I'm going to send you manna. And so God, and God sends them manna. And the book of Exodus over and over is God, God is providing for them. It says that for 40 years, their shoes did not wear out. Now they're walking everywhere. It says for 40 years, your shoes didn't wear out. And God is providing for every single need that they have. Even when he gave them the manna, he says, this is so that you will learn uh, um, um, that man does not live on bread, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so God was trying to teach them to depend on him, but they, they at every turn, they still grumble against him. And in Numbers 11, um, verse 1, it says, now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. Now, that's a serious statement right there. I mean, the people became like those who, who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. I ask myself sometimes, Lord, you know, sometimes I'll find myself grumbling or complaining at work or, or something like that. And I'm like, am I being one of those that are like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord? And that's frightening. Because, again, we, we, we are born in this time where everything is just grace, grace, grace. Don't worry about it. God's going to forgive you. God's going to overlook it. God, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is not someone that just takes complaining and whining and grumbling and just says, no, it's no big deal. It angers God because he wants to, us to learn how to depend on him. Verse 2, the people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So God, or, okay, the Lord, back to verse 1, it says, they became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And I, I read this stuff, and I'm like, how are these guys not learning? So many times plagues came on them. So many times fiery serpents came on them. The ground opened up and swallowed some of them. And yet still they complain. I'm like, oh my gosh. It says, uh, so the name of the place was called Tibera because of the fire the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them, look at this, had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. 
But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except there's ma this manna. This stuff that God gave them supernaturally to sustain them, to fill every need that they had, is not good enough now. And sometimes, again, I wonder sometimes when I'm complaining, it's like, Lord, I really got it good. I really have everything that I need. I have everything that I could want. And yet I find myself still complaining. And that should put some kind of fear in our hearts. Um, in verse, um, verse 18. So, Mo, uh, so God could, tells Moses to assemble the elders of the people. In verse 18 he says, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month, listen to this, until it comes out of your nostrils, and it becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? You see that? Verse 31 says, Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought them quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp in about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. Quail everywhere. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day gathered and, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Look at this, verse 33. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So, so the name of that place was called Kibroth Hattavah, because they, there they buried the people who had been greedy. So, again, and, and in Romans 1, verse 24, we won't turn there, but it talks about how the people who love their sins, it says that God gave them over to their sins. And that's the thing. God warns us. God will warn us, and he will be patient with us, and he'll try to get us to, to change our minds and to turn from our ways. But at some point, God says, okay, if that's what you want to do, then I'm going to let you do it, but you will reap what you sow. Right? And that's the thing. If we want our ways, if we persist in having my way, if I persist in doing the things that I want, and I'm not going to listen to what God says. The thing is, a lot of times we're in a situation where we're like, well, I prayed, but I didn't really hear an answer. A lot of times we heard the answer, but we didn't like the answer. Right? And so we're like, well, you know what? I'm still going to do what I want to do and stuff. And we do that, and then we we have the consequences, and then we're like, God, why are you allowing these consequences on my life? Right? That's good. And the thing is, is God wants us to be a people who hear his voice, who obey his voice. Turn to Psalm chapter 32. And the thing is, especially somebody that had such gifting from God, someone that, that had such an anointing from the Lord, should be... And that's the thing, that we are responsible for what gives us. We all want God to speak to us. We want God to use us. We, know, we want God to, to do things in our lives and stuff, not realizing that the more God gives us, the more responsibility we have for those things, right? Just like the Pharisees, he says, if they had not heard my words, they would not be held, uh, they would not be accountable for them. In Psalm 32, verse, um, verse uh, 8 it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. 
I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Look at verse 9. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come to you. And that's the thing. Again, what God has always wanted is someone that he can walk with, right? Someone that he can commune with. Someone that, like a friend, like someone that's just like a lover. Someone that he can say, hey, don't do that. And we're like, all right, I'm not going to do that. I know so many times I've known, I've sinned knowing that it's wrong, knowing that I'm breaking God's heart, and yet I still persist in it. Maturity means coming to the place where we know this breaks God's heart. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way anymore. Amen? Amen. Um, Sometimes that would be easy to lead. You know, like those horses that you could just barely push on. Yeah. They turn rather than needing the, you know, this thing in my mouth. Like, Holy Spirit, please just, Mm -hmm. you know, help me to be sensitive to you to easily move me to go. Mm -hmm. You know what? In in the Comanches, which speaking of this region about 100 years ago, the Comanche Indians were the the most uh, elite uh, cavalry in the world. They would ride their horses in battle without a bridle they would go, they would direct them with their knees they would just kind of touch them whichever they wanted their horse to go and that horse would go they'd be shooting bows and arrows at full gallop on a horse and, and it's because again just like you say i mean it would just take the slightest pressure and that horse knew immediately what it's what its owner wanted to do and they worked as one unit they worked as a team and that's what god wants from us he wants to work he wants us to be one unit he wants us to work as a team when he says go we go when he says stay we stay when he says turn we turn and stuff and and not we just doing our own thing and we just live in our own lives and um and that's that's again this is where maturity comes in this when we step into this walk when we begin to walk this way is when we begin that road of maturing and where we're walk we becoming what God has called us to be and now we're not just go, saying the christian thing going to church and and because of that we're okay now it's like now where it's where that relationship comes in um okay verse uh it says uh Verse 23, when the donkey, or, okay, back, back to 22. Numbers. Is that back in numbers? numbers? Yeah, sorry. Numbers what again? 22. Okay. Verse 22, it says, but God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an, ad, as an adversary against him. It says, now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back in the way. When the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall so that he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. But the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She lay down under Balaam, so Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. Now, again, here's the prophet of God, someone that God speaks to, someone that God speaks through, God speaks words that they, they happen and stuff. And right now, the angel of the Lord's before him, and he can't see it, but his donkey can. And this is just, it just goes to show, and, you know, sometimes we're like that, right? Sometimes we have some donkey telling us, look, what you're doing is not right, and we can't hear it, right? 
because all we can see is me. All we can see is this is my gifting. I, you know, God has called me. God has chosen me. God has put His stuff in me, and and we get we 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 become proud. We become arrogant, right? And when that happens, you can't listen to someone else. When we get to the point where no one can correct us, where no one can speak into our lives, then we got serious problems. We always have to be at a place where someone can say, look, what you're, even someone that we consider a donkey, <laughs> someone that we consider like, you know, that doesn't have any, anything and stuff, and yet they speak to us, and you know God just spoke to me right then, right? And so the thing is, is it's, it's again, it's, it's the arrogance and the pride that will prevent us from being able to hear that. And again, that's the thing that we have to always constantly guard against is pride and arrogance, especially if God uses us for anything. Because, you know, even if you witness to someone and tell them about Jesus, you know, something comes up in our hearts, right? Look at, wow, look at me, you know, I'm doing good and stuff. Anytime we do something for God, even if we spend some time in prayer, whatever we do for God... The devil will come to tempt us in the same way that Jesus was tempted. What? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those things are constantly with us. Those things we have to constantly guard against because the enemy will use those things to destroy us and to destroy the ministry that God has called us to. It says, uh, verse 28, uh, verse 27 again, When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then, now, again, for most of us, that would make us stop right then and go, Oh, there's something seriously wrong right here. <laughs> it, says, and, uh, it says, Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. Now, number one, we're, again, we're getting insight into Balaam. Who is Balaam? Balaam has a temper problem, right? I mean, he, he doesn't even take note of the fact that a donkey is talking to him. Right. <laughs> he, he, is, he, is, he is inflamed right now. He is freaking out. He's hit his donkey three times. He's like, if I had a sword, I would have cut your head off. He is angry. And, you know, in Proverbs it says, uh, the righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. And stuff, and so all these things give us insight into who he is. He's hitting his animal, and he's like, "If I had a sword, I would kill you." And my question is, okay, if you killed it, then how would you get where you're going, right? I mean, and and that's what anger does. Because how many of us have have hung ourselves on a short rope through our anger, right? Because we we got mad. It's like when someone gets mad and they punch a wall and they break their hand. It's like, well, who did you hurt? The wall, or you know, yourself? Um. It says, verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I, not, have I ever been accustomed to do this to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Again, at this point, what should he have done? He should have gotten on the donkey, turned the other way, and just kept going. Right? It says, But the donkey saw me and turned aside for me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. 
And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing, I will turn back. Now, why is he saying that? If it's displeasing, I will turn back. There should not be any of this. If it's displeasing to you, then I'll, it should have been, okay, I'm out, okay? There should have not been this, this justification. And this thing, what it's showing, it's showing again this halfway repentance. Well, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. You know, it, you know, if it's bad, maybe I shouldn't do it. No, it's like you should have got up, got on the donkey and went back home. But he doesn't do that. And so we see how God allowed him to do it in verse 22, but God wasn't happy about it. Well, the angel's going to allow him to do it. But again, that doesn't mean he should do it. He should have went back home. Verse 35, but the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you shall speak to them only the word which I tell you. Um, so Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. And again, if we, are, if we are intent on following our sins, if we're intent on having what we want to have, the Lord will give it to us. Then Balak said to Balaam, Oh, it says 36. Then Balak heard that Balaam was coming and went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you, send to call you? Why do you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? Again, he's laying the temptations out for him. So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I will speak. Okay, so Balaam takes him to the high places. He sacrifices to the Lord. So verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak, Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And so they offer these offerings to the Lord. Verse 3, he says, I, uh, Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went on a bare hill. Verse 4, now God met Balaam and he said to him, I have set up seven altars and I have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and he said, return to Balak and you shall speak thus. And so he returned to him and behold, he was standing here beside his burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. He took up his discourse and said, now Balaam gets three prophecies from the Lord and uh, we don't really have time to spend a lot of time in these prophecies, but this is the good stuff of this story. Just like if you read the prophecies, just the heart that God has for his people and his love for them and how Balak wants him to curse them. But God's like, no, we're not going to curse them. We're going to bless them. Verse 7, he took up this discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the east, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. Look at this. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks and I look, and look at him from the hills, behold a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. You see that? So verse 11 says, Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I, I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. Look at verse 12. He says, But he replied, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So he repented. So, so again, he is a prophet of the Lord. And God speaks to him. God speaks through him. And the thing is, is, is that is the fearful thing about having giftings and anointings from the Lord because 
we have seen many cases of people that were gifted, highly gifted from the Lord, fall. And people that were highly gifted and have, have anointings and just huge giftings and stuff, and yet, yet they fell because there was sin in their hearts and stuff. And so it's a, th- it's a fearful thing to be gifted by God and yet not be walking with the Lord. And it's often the same temptation for everybody like that, that it is all around, and it's usually greed and pride that tempts those gifted by God. It's those two things that yeah. the enemy... Well, it's, again, it's, it's always the same, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And the thing is, 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 is there something in me that can be bought, right? And we all have to ask that question, because if there's something in me that can be bought, I will be bought. And so we have to know our weaknesses and know and, 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 and be on the alert against those things. Know what our tendencies are, right? If, if you have a problem with alcohol, don't go to bars, right? If you have a problem with lust, stay away from the women or the men. If you have a problem with, with gossip, you know, stay away from your gossip clubs. If you have a, gossip, a problem with anger, you know, learn how to, you know what I'm saying? Learn what your weaknesses are. Learn, know yourself. Know what your problems are. Know the things that you deal with and go before God until God deals with those things. Amen. We can't just be satisfied with our, oh Lord, forgive me for my sins, you know. And we must be a people who give God no rest day or night until he does that work in our hearts. And that is the thing with God. God will do the work in our hearts. God will deliver us from sin. He will deliver us from temptation, but only if we seriously war and wrestle against those things and we fight them until they're in the submission, just like Jacob wrestled with the angel all night long and said, I will not not let go of you until you bless me. Um, Look at verse 18 another time. Um, So, so God, uh, Balak is wanting uh, Balaam to curse the people of God. Get, um, Balaam keeps coming to God and, and he comes before him several times. And I think that he really wanted to curse the people of Israel because he, for money, is wanting to do what Balak wants him to do. But then God puts that word in his mouth and it's God and he can do no other. Another place in verse 18, it says, Then he took his, up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I received a command to bless. What he has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord is his God, the Lord his God is with him. Look at this, and the shout of a king is among them. I mean, this is awesome. Again, it just shows how God is for his people. Even his people, Israel, who are a bunch of stubborn, willful children. God still loves them, and, and Balak wants them to curse him, but he's not cursing them. He is blessing them. It says in verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt, for he is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to to Jacob and to Israel what God what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself, it will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. You see that? In Proverbs 26, 2, it says, A curse without a cause will not alight. 
And so the thing is, is, is if, we, if we are walking in holiness, if we are seeking the Lord, if we are turning away from evil, if we're dealing with the things that God exposes in our heart, there is no curse that can light on us. Yeah, I love that because like in the middle of him prophesying that over Israel, like they're in, they're in chastisement. They're getting chastisement from God. Like people are dying because they're in rebellion. They're getting rebuked, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet God's heart is their, still heart. for them. And, so. and But on the outside, he's like, look at the people of God. Wow. And like sees the glory of God on God's people. Yeah, it's but, like dis like I guess it's like a parent disciplining their kid versus like somebody trying to come against them. It's like, no, you get back. You know, it's yeah. like you yeah. know, yeah, I'll and, I, my kids. and that's yeah. the thing. You know, it's like it's like in family we can correct each other, right? Sometimes even like angrily or you know forcefully, it's like you're being an idiot. But if someone else says that to our kids, it's like, I, I will smack you, right? <laughs> it's like, we will protect our own kids, right? And it's like, because, because we love them, we're chastising them. Because we want them to do what's right. And we want the best for them, whereas someone else doesn't care. Someone else is just judging them or, or yeah. you know, trying to break them down or whatever. And so, and so God's, God's chastisement is for our good and because he loves us and stuff. And, so, um, one more time. Now, again, think of these. You know, here Balak has spent a lot of money to bring this guy all the way here, and he's going to pay this guy a lot of money if he will if he will curse the guys. Two times he's asked him to curse them. Two times he's blessed them. Imagine Balak. He's the king. He's got his whole army here. I mean, surely he's being tempted. It's like, should I kill this guy or what? Right? I mean, imagine all these important people are angry and frustrated at you, okay? So Balaam is facing some, some tribulation here. And I think that in his heart, he wants to curse them, and, and he's afraid of the king, and he's afraid of the Moabites and stuff, but like every time he opens his mouth, God speaks to him, just like his donkey. Actually, did like he did give in to them. Yeah. Are you gonna go over that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So verse uh, chapter twenty four, verse one. Okay. So when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now the other times when Balaam did this, if you read the whole story, it says that he he. He did sacrifices. He sacrificed like seven bulls and seven rams. So every time, Balaam was actively seeking God and actively trying to hear from the Lord. This time now, he's not, he's not seeking the Lord. He's just going to the wilderness, and this time God finds him and speaks through him and stuff. And in verse 3, it says, He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, Falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. Now, all the time, like... like one thing that we miss because we don't live in biblical times is anytime the Bible talks about horns and the wild ox and stuff, the ox for them was like the combine for a farmer today. 
And this was an ag agrarian society. The strongest thing they knew, pretty much, was an ox. So when, when it talks about the horns of the Lord and being like a horn and stuff, that is the most powerful image that they've got, right? So they're talking about the Lord's strength. And um, it says, God brings him out of Egypt, verse 8 again, for he is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries. And he, Now, this is interesting because he's talking about Edom, right? He's talking about Moab. He says, he will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him. Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. Look at this in verse 10. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. Now again, this is the king of, Ed, uh, of, Ed, of Moab, sorry, um, this is a man who was used to having his way. This is a man who could snap his fingers and have you killed right on the spot. It says his anger is burning against Malam. And he struck his hands together, which I'm sure in those days was a bad thing. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back for honor. In other words, he's saying, get out of my sight. He's blaming God. Yeah. <laughs> Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers who, have used, who you had sent to me, saying, Through Balak were, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not, na not near. Look at this. A star shall come forth from Jacob. What did the wise men say when they came to Jerusalem? We saw his star, right? And so, again, some people might say, well, he, you know, he's not really prophesying by the Lord. He is speaking scripture right here. He is speaking prophecies of Jesus Christ. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel, and he will crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be a possession, Seir, its enemies, will also be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. So, again, he's saying all this stuff about how God is going to destroy the people of Moab and, and how God is going, he's prophesying of Jesus and the final and the ultimate destruction of Jesus against the powers of darkness. And this is where, it, you know, in the New Testament, it shifts from the physical to the spiritual. And when Jesus came and he made a public display over all of his enemies and he triumphed openly over them. Okay? And so Jesus has triumphed over the enemies. And this is why we don't live in fear, because Jesus has triumphed over them. And if we are seated in heavenly places where he is, then we, 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 we walk in that triumph. We live in that triumph. And we, too, can be in that triumph as we abide in him. Right? But that victory is in Jesus. And so we have to maintain ourselves in Him. It's a constant thing. We're walking with Him. We're not living how we want to. We're walking with Him. 
Turn to uh, chapter 25. It says, and then verse 25, the last uh, verse in this chapter, says, then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his place. Now, this is not the end of the story, okay? Um, if if you stop reading there, then like then it all ends there and everything's all good. But look at chapter 25, verse 1. And this is the sad part about it. And again, this is the thing with Satan. If he can't get you one way, he'll get you another way. Verse 1, it says, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. You see that? Who was trying to get them to curse? Uh, who was trying to get God to curse the people? The people of Moab, right? And it says, so, so they weren't able to do that. It says, but then they begin to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Didn't God tell them not to intermarry with the peoples, right? Because why? Because their hearts, they would start following their idols and their hearts would be led away from God. It says, verse two, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, look at this, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his, man, slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of, tent, of the tent of meeting. So sin is rampant, even to the point that they're, they're, they're right in the tent of meeting. They're right in front of the tabernacle of God where people are weeping and crying out to God, asking God to be merciful, and they're sinning right in front of that in, in public. It says, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Look at this verse 9. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the problem is, is that there are plagues in a lot of our churches. Because people are practicing sin openly, um, and they're not repenting of it. They're doing it before the Lord, and because of that, um, there are people who are spiritually dead. It's just like in the book of, uh, of uh, when it talks about um, communion, it says, judge yourselves rightly, because because people are walking in sin, many are dead. And, stuff. and the thing is, a lot of times, people can be spiritually dead and still be walking around. People can be going to church, doing religious things, and still not have the Spirit of God in them because they're practicing things that God has told them not to practice. Go ahead. Are you going to read Revelation 2.14? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Okay. So, um, turn to... Let me turn there right quick and see if I... <laughs> Okay, so turn to Numbers 31, 16. So again, the story is not through. We think that Balaam's just gone home. It's over with. We think that Balaam's part of it is done. But in uh, Numbers 31, 16, we're just going to read this. Uh, they're talking about having war with the Midianites and the Moabites and, and destroying them because of the sins that happened, right? In verse 16, it says, Behold... Uh, it says, verse 15, Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? And in verse 16, it says, behold, 
These women caused the sons of Israel, look at this, through the counsel of Balaam. Do you see that? To trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. You see that? So it doesn't tell us that in Numbers 22, but in Numbers 31, it's telling us that Balaam didn't just go home. It says before he went home, he counseled the king of Moab to cause the women to sleep with the Israelites. And he knew that because of their sins, it would bring a curse. Remember what we wrote in, read in Proverbs, mm -hmm. a sin without a cause will not light. But if there's a cause, you can't stop it. Yeah, it would weaken them. Yeah. And so because of their sins, it brought a curse on them. Turn to Revelation 2.14. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> In Revelation 2.14, we know that uh, in Revelations 2 through 3, uh, John, uh, through, the, through, the, through the angel, is writing to the churches and, and um, you know, yes. yeah, Turkey, yeah. basically. Okay, so in, ver in uh, Revelation 2, verse 12, he says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Now one thing about God in almost all the letters to these churches, he says, he sees the good, right? He sees all their good stuff. He's like, man, I know when it was really hard in the days of Antipas, which we don't really know what that was, but apparently it was a time of great tribulation, right? Antipas, this guy named Antipas, obviously gave his life for it, and people stood by the Lord during this time, right? He says, uh, my, he says, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful, man, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam who kept teaching Balak. Now look at that, that word kept teaching. So it's not something that Balaam just casually mentioned to Balak, but it's something he, he, he kept saying to him, right? I'm telling you, this is a way that you can destroy the people of God. It says, he kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idol and to commit acts of immorality. You see that? Um, turn to 2 Peter 2. It's interesting because it does imply that that's what happened, but like now it there just fades it right out that, like, you know, right. there was a conspiracy against Israel in that way. Yeah. yeah. And again, this shows the workings of Satan. Mm -hmm. if, if he can't get us one way, he'll get us another way. If he can't, you know, if he can't, and it's all, it's like, if he can't, and that's, that's the thing. It doesn't matter what the world is saying about the church, right? It doesn't matter how, how the enemies of God revile the people of God. What they say means nothing. What they say, if someone calls you a Jesus freak or someone calls you whatever they call you, whatever they label you, if they don't eat with you at lunch, if they don't hang out with you, if they say you're a nerd, whatever, it doesn't matter. It cannot hurt you one bit because... The enemy can't do anything to you, right, that way. But if he can cause you to sin, if he can cause you to compromise, and I see this all the time. I see, like, like um, people that I work with, I mean, they, they know I'm a believer and stuff, and it's like, so they, you know, and actually they respect me, but what, what believers will do, or what unbelievers will do sometimes is like, well, why don't you come have a beer with us, right? 
Or why don't you come, you know, come party with us or something like that? Which, you know, honestly, I don't think it would be a major thing per... Okay, listen to what I'm saying. I don't think it would be a major thing to have a beer with an unbeliever, right? But I think that if you go out to a bar with several believers and, you know, you're going to a bar, then then you get into... You know what I'm saying? I'm What I'm saying is that, um, you know, we we... we Friendship evangelism is a good thing as long as you're evangelizing them, mm-hmm. right? But when they're evangelizing you, then it's not a good thing, okay? I don't think it would be a sin necessarily per, per se to drink a beer with an unbeliever, especially if you're talking about God, right? Mm-hmm. Because they drank wine in the Bible. I don't care what anyone says, they drank wine in the Bible, Unbelievers and believers probably drank wine together. Now, they weren't getting drunk, and I'm not saying to get drunk or anything or to be affected by them. But my whole point is that don't let them affect you. Okay? So that was a weird rabbit trail. I don't know how I got on to Second <laughs> Peter 2, verse 1. But I, I, again, I, I think that, yeah. Verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, people, just as there will also be false prophets among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be aligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago, long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse twelve. So, so Jesus is t- or Peter is talking about all these false prophets that are coming that are coming into the church. And again, at that time, it, the Gnosticism was beginning to come in the church, and all these false teachings. Jesus wasn't really a man, and stuff like that. It says in verse twelve, but these like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will be in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it as a pleasure to revel in their daytime in, in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, look at this, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You see that? It says, so how many times did he say, even if you gave me your whole house full of silver and gold, I would not do it. But it says that, it says that he did it for the wages of unrighteousness. He did it to get paid, right? It says, uh, verse 16, But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Um, turn to one more place in Jude 11. Jude is right before Revelation. So again, when whenever he's saying all these things, again, he's speaking these big words, you can't tempt me with all this stuff, yet in his heart there was still a place where he could be tempted by that. And so we need to become a people that are more than just surface. We need substance. We need to, when we say, say, say it, we mean it. And we're like, I'm not going to be tempted by this. There are things that I know in my life that, that were strongholds. And until like one day I'd said, no, 
I'm not going to do that anymore. I will not be tempted by that. And there are times when we have to put our foot down. And the problem is that sometimes there's still a little part of us in there that likes that and maybe really doesn't want to put our foot completely uh -huh. down. Right? Yeah. And it's like, ooh, yeah. I, I, You know, one more time and then I'll really put my foot down. Right? Or... Or I let it slide a little bit. You know, it's, it's just a little thing. What does the Bible say? Catch the little foxes. Because it's the little foxes that destroy the vine. Because little foxes become big foxes. And they invite all their buddy foxes. And pretty soon, you got a fox party going on. <laughs> That's what the fox said. In Jude 11, or verse uh, 10. It says, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and again, for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So again, according to the Bible, Cain had a, had a wage problem. Turn to Numbers 31. We'll see what, uh, because it actually tells us what happened to Balaam. So from, from this time, God says there's going to be perpetual war against Moab because they, they tried to destroy my people. He said, don't show them any mer mercy, utterly destroy them. And in uh, Prov uh, Numbers 31, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. In other words, Moses is about to die. Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of the slain, Evi and Rechem, and Zer and Hur and Reba and the five kings of Midian. Look at this. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. See that? Balaam, the prophet of God, the man who should have walked with God, the man who should have been a man of God, we should be reading him like, uh, like we read about Elijah or any of the other prophets. Instead of that, he got destroyed with the enemies of God. Because, and, and again, that's something that we as believers, you know, in Jeremiah 17, it says the heart is deceitful above all, all other things, Right? It says we have to know our hearts. We have to know what's going on. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13. In 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1. This is Paul speaking. He says, this is the third time. Now, the third time would be Paul's last missionary journey. He's coming to the end of his, his journeys and stuff. He's about to give his life. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those 
who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. We also are weak in him, yet we will live with him through the power of God directed toward you. Look at this in verse 5. Test yourselves. You see that? He doesn't say just kind of take it for granted. Just, just take your Christianity, you know. You've been a Christian for 20 years now. You've been a Christian for 10 years, whatever. You got it down now. It's like with a marriage. If you start taking your marriage for granted, you're going to lose it. Right? It's like, you know, if you if you start treating your wife, well, we've been married for 10 years now. We're, we're good. You know, I don't have to work on it anymore. You're going to lose your marriage. You have to continually guard against those things. And you have to continually be trying to, to better it, right? That's, a, that's the thing with marriage is we don't realize that it's something that you have to continually try to better. It's like as parenting. As parents, you try to get better all the time, right? In anything that we do, the goal is to get better. It says for uh, verse 5, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust you will realize that we ourselves did not fail the test. So again, Paul's saying, don't just take your Christianity for granted. Don't just think that you've been a Christian for, for however long now, but test yourselves. Test, just like he said when they were taking communion. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians nine, um, verse twenty-three. This is Paul speaking. He says, "I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it." Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. Now, self-control is something that I hope to be teaching on pretty soon. Is I. We, we think that, you know, we, we I think especially as Americans in the 21st century, we don't like self-control. We don't like self-discipline. I've been thinking a lot about discipline and self-control. That's the whole thing about fasting. I will be the first to say that I am terrible when it comes to fasting. I, I'm, I, I have a really hard time doing it. But I've always wondered, why is fasting so important? And the reason why is there are three things that are absolutely essential to every single human being. Number one is air, number two is water, and number three is food. Without those three, those are the three most basic things that every single human being needs. Without those things, you will die. Now, you can't fast from air, right? You can't make yourself not breathe. You can't fast for water. I mean, not very long anyway. You got to have water. The only one of those three that you can really say no to is food. And why is it so powerful is because it is so basic to us. It is such a need to us. We eat without even being hungry. We eat without thinking of it. It's just a thing that we do and stuff. And so to to sacrifice and to say, you know what? I am going to make a conscious choice not to do this. That means you are denying yourself one of the three most basic, most fundamental things to life and human beings. 
And especially if you're saying, I'm going to deny this for the purpose of drawing closer to God. Because you're saying, I'm going to deny this ba most basic fundamental need of humanity so that I can draw near to God spiritually. And that's why it's so powerful. But yeah, the, so that's the thing about discipline is we, we don't like discipline because we have everything at hand, right? We have everything that we could possibly need. If I want something, I go to the store and I get it. We are a microwave generation. If I want to eat right now, I'm going to eat right now. And it's really become difficult for us to deny ourselves, you know, because it's so easy to have anything that we want. Uh, if you're like, even when it comes to sin, it, sin is so readily available. Anything that we want as human beings is so readily available to us. And so God, I believe, wants us as his believers to begin to learn to walk in a disciplined manner. Do sometimes, and I'm not talking about a legalistic thing or saying, you know, I won't eat pork or, you know, I'm not saying anything like that. But sometimes we need to do things that our, fle that our flesh wants to do. We need to not do those things. Right? Something that causes us pleasure, something that we can readily have that we, oh, I deserve this, you know, or whatever, or, you know, I worked hard, I can, I can have this. Some, sometimes we need to say no to those things because we need to learn what it is to say no. Because if we can say no, if we can't say no when it's easy, how are we going to say no when it's hard? And that, I think, is the secret of fasting, is learning to say no when it's easy, quote unquote. Right? So that when it becomes difficult, when we're in the fires of temptation, when, we, when it's hot and Satan is pouring everything at us and he's like Delilah whining every day, why don't you do this and stuff? And we're wanting to give in because we have become people of discipline. We can say no in the hard places. Okay. Uh, verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then, again, think of the discipline that an athlete has to have. I mean, you know, someone, why do people have six-packs abs? They have that because they discipline themselves. You cannot have six-packs abs without disciplining yourself. Anything that, you know, people that are geniuses and, and uh, why are they that way? Because they discipline themselves to study for hours and hours and hours at a time. Right? People that have, do, have done great things are people who have disciplined themselves, who have, who have, who have uh, walked the path of discipline, and that way they're, you know, they're able to do things that I can't do or you know, other people can't do. Uh, he says they exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive an, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline, this is Paul, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself, Paul, will not be disqualified. So Paul didn't take it lightly. Paul didn't take that as something that, you know, he could just uh, kind of ignore and just walk haphazardly. One more place in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, I want to start at verse 13. It says, but we going ahead, and again, this is in Paul's last missionary trip. It says, but we going to the ship, we set sail for Asos, I don't know, intending from there to take Paul on board, for he had arranged it, 
intending himself to go by land. Um, verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that we would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, look at this, that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the, grace, of the gospel of the grace of God." Look at this in verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among who I am about to, who I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So Paul is with them. He knows that this is going to be the last time he sees these people. These are people that he would write to and say, my little, and call them his children, right? These are people that he loved with all of his heart. This is his last time he's going to spend with them. And so it's like if you're on your deathbed, what's the last thing that you're going to tell your kids or, or people that are close to you? And so what Paul is telling them is something that's, that's very important to him. He says, uh, for verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Look at this in verse 28. Be on guard, what does he say, for yourselves first, right? Again, he's talking to the leaders and, and the pastors, the whatever and stuff. He says, be on God guard for yourselves and for all the flock among, among who, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So God is speaking to the shepherds. And he says, again, to the shepherds, don't just take your calling, your giftings, your anointings for granted. Be on guard because there's an enemy who wants to destroy you. And that's why we have to pray for our leaders in the church. Because Satan wants to destroy the leaders, right? Paul would say over and over, pray for me, you know? Because um, Satan, if Satan can get the leaders fall, then he can get the sheep to fall, right? And that's the whole thing. You know, every time some leader falls into sin, it's like, I, uh, even the church where I was saved in, they had a church split. And there were people that stopped following God because, you know, people were hurting each other and backbiting and gossiping about each other. And, and things. And that's the thing is every time somebody falls, Satan uses that an opportunity against the sheep. See, if they were following God, they would have never done that. This whole Christianity thing, this is a lie, right? And so Satan uses the fall of, of the leaders to get the sheep to fall. But I love how he's really emphasizing here too to the leaders to, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood for I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock um, and so he also is really charging the leaders to be on guard for the flock and to pray yeah. for them and to shepherd them and yeah. protect them exactly but again again the whole thing is is first he says be on guard for yourselves 
right? Because if you as a shepherd, if you're not on guard for yourself, then you can't take care of the flock. And it's like Jesus would, would talk to the Pharisees. He would talk to them about, well, I'm the shepherd. I'm the true shepherd who lays down his sheep, life for the sheep. Everybody else is hirelings, right? And he was talking about the Pharisees and talking about how they were doing it for what they could get out of it. And Jesus says, if you're a true shepherd, you will lay down your life for the sheep. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, you know, and the whole thing is, is like I, I look at um, Balaam's life and it's, it's sad because of the potential that he had and what he could have been. I look at him in the same way as I look at Judas in a lot of ways. When God called, when Jesus called Judas, I don't think when Judas first started following Jesus that it was immediately in his heart to turn against Jesus, right? Or to betray him. I think at some point, Judas' heart was to truly follow Jesus. But the Bible says that, that he would pilfer from the purse, that he was, the, he was the keeper of the purse, and he would pilfer from it. And so I think that what happened is, again, there was that place of opportunity in Judas that the devil came at and began to wear down and begin to wear down and begin to wear down, and it was greed, right? And I think that, number one, he, he, he attacked the greed that was in his heart. And, you know, he sold Jesus out for 30, 30 pieces of silver. But I think it was also that Jesus was not what Judas wanted him to be. Jews, Jews, Judas wanted a king, right, to come in and, and kick out the Romans and, and be this mighty person like David and stuff. And, and when he found out that it was going to happen, I think he was disillusioned. But the whole point being is that, again, we are to guard our hearts because every single one of us have giftings and callings from the Lord that God wants to use our lives, whether it's in some huge way or whether it's in small ways. It doesn't matter. If we are born again by the Spirit of God, He can use us and He wants to use us, but we all have to be aware of the pitfalls. We have to be aware of the traps, the snares that Satan will set before us and make no doubt about it. If you are following the Lord, he will try to destroy you, period, right? Now, if we're not following the Lord, if we're just kind of warming a bench or we're just taking up space or we're just being a coat rack for Jesus, then Satan doesn't care because we're not doing anything. But as soon as you step out and begin to do things for the Lord, Satan will be there to try to tempt you. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And that's the thing. If we are walking close, the closer we walk to Jesus, the, the more fire. Exactly. And the stronger we are, right? It's just what it, it, I've noticed the thing that that's why even Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift of God that's within you. And I notice in my life many times as we get to where that fire starts burning low, right? We get to where that, that relation, that closeness is not there. And, and it's like, stir that up. Because where fire is, the enemy doesn't want to come there, right? Where the fire of God is. And so the more in fire we are for God, the more passionate we are for Him, the stronger we are. And, the, and again, the whole thing is be on the alert. And yeah, I think humility is extremely important yeah. because I see it as beauty or intelligence or strength. God doesn't value that person anymore. He can give any of us amazing beauty, amazing intelligence, amazing strength. He can pick any one of us to do that. And so it is with the other gifts. If you have, you know, a gift of healing or prophecy or whatever, 
you could easily become inflated thinking that that has anything to do with you yeah, yeah. if you start looking at it that way and start pe and people acting as though that's anything yeah. you know, other than God and you start taking a little bit of credit for it you know a little bit of the glory for it because only God's supposed to receive glory mm -hmm. so that's where a lot of people stumble if they walk in great gifting in an area and then they start becoming dependent on that glory and honor that everybody gives them for that. And it's kind of like beauty. Some people give you glory and honor and open all mm -hmm. kinds of doors for you just because yeah. you're yeah. gorgeous or you're handsome. Or mm -hmm. if you're super smart, you know, all kinds of doors open that may not otherwise be open for you. And so humility is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And then on the um, fear issue, guys just really been putting it on my heart this week um just how fear of anything except god is an insult to god because